Ho, ho, ho. Hello, this is Santa Claus, and this podcast is brought to you by the Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is Editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo. Shipping products as easy as sending emails. Thanks for the lead-in, Santa. Welcome all to this end-of-year Lodestar production. Sticking to our Christmas and holiday theme, we'll be looking at the ghosts of COVID past as we examine the significance of the biggest stories of 2021 and the jump-out narratives that have found traction in media far beyond the confines of logistics and shipping. Then we'll be looking at the here and now as we pick out the winners and losers of pandemic supply chains and we analyse labour shortages, consolidation and acquisitions, who has money to burn and the biggest challenges facing forwarders and shippers. And then, let's call it the ghost of Christmas future, we'll look at rates and forecasts for 2022, what COVID means for the future of supply chain planning and whether shippers and carriers can ever forgive each other for their past sins. I'm joined in this rampaging holiday episode by the Lodestars, Alex Lenane, Mike Wackett and Gavin Van Maal. We have input from DHL Express CEO John Pearson, renowned shipping analyst Lars Jensen, Electrolux veteran and current VP at Sea Intelligence Bjorn van Jensen, and then we have a full-length exclusive interview with Michael Wax, co-founder and CEO at Forto. On the Asia Europe trade lane, we still dare see 7 to 12 days of delays, like super unreliable schedules, and everything seems to be still very out of sync. So it's difficult to foresee any kind of change in the near term that would mean that all of those problems are going away. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And yes, this is indeed our holiday special. And if you'll excuse the hideous pun, it's a cracker. Here in the UK, the government of Boris Johnson is facing ruin as it emerges that Downing Street hosted a series of Christmas parties in 2020 even as it bans social gatherings and hospital visits for the rest of the country. So as we brace for more lockdowns, it feels apt that we at the Lodestar take our lead from our government and host our own party of sorts to mark the end of the year and look forward to 2022. And what celebration would be complete without my three guests this week? First up, we have Lodestar Managing Editor. He's a beard-growing maestro known for sprinkling literary stardust on his down-at-heel freight hipsterdom. It's Gavin Van Maal. Hello, Gav. <laughs> good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm very good. Next is someone you've been reading all year as she has led the Lodestar's air cargo coverage. She'd rather be jetting off somewhere warm, but she has deigned to join us instead. It's Lodestar publisher Alex Lenane. Hi, Mike. And last but not least, it's our guru of container shipping, a man whose last appearance on the Lodestar podcast confirmed his commitment to sartorial youthful innocence with a touch of street. Mike Wackett, how's things? Yeah, great, Mike. Uh, great to be on again. Shortly, we'll be hearing predictions from the world's leading analysts and executives as we discuss what happened in 2022 and how exactly COVID and the events of the last two years might reshape supply chain planning. But first, we'll reflect on some of the stories that have defined 2021 and taken the world of shipping logistics into the mainstream. 
And I think first up, it has to be the story that really caught the world's imagination this year. The blocking of the Suez Canal and a large chunk of world trade when the ever-given container ship was grounded in March and stuck for the best part of a week. Now, I know Gav has some strong views on how this incident was covered in the mainstream media, which we'll hear shortly. But first, Mike Wackett, you were on point covering the ever-given for the Lodestar. What did the subsequent strategies of carriers and the impact this has had on global logistics tell us about the nature of freight markets in the first half of 2021? Well, it, it was quite interesting timing, Mike, because when the unfortunate ship ever given blocked the canal in March, uh, spot rates were beginning to soften, which would be the norm for the post-Chinese New Year period before the start of the peak season. I mean, this effective shutdown uh, a week of supply chain between Asia and Europe created a backlog and turbocharged rates, which also had a ripple effect on other trades such as uh, the Trans-Pacific. And then, of course, what we saw was the arrival in uh, North Europe of all of this pent-up uh, traffic on vessels, also on vessels that have been diverted via the Cape during this period to avoid the canal caused acute port congestion in North Europe, which many of the hubs have not fully recovered from to this day. Shippers were asked to pay premium charges of up to $5,000 a box on the top of already highly elevated rates, just to guarantee equipment and shipment on board ships during the, that further period. It was quite interesting because there were conspiracies, uh, theories going around at the time that the ever given had deliberately blocked the world's way in order to prop up rates. As you say, I mean, it, it, there was a lot of conspiracy theories. I had some much worse conspiracy theories than that. But the the blockage of Asia Europe for that almost a week by the ever given, of course, that did have wider ramifications across the container trades. But it also took container shipping and logistics viral because all of a sudden our industry caught the world's attention because it's such a visual event. Gav, you were looking at some of this wider coverage of the blockage of the Suez um, and you found it, should I say, misinformed or maybe a slightly hysterical in terms of the surprise in the wider world that this could actually happen? What rather exercised me was the, um, all the references to a black swan event. It was all this sudden people, well, how did this happen? We didn't see this happening. This has never happened before. But of course it has. I mean, Suez 1 was only built in the 19th century. And of course, it was closed for eight years between 1967 and 75. I mean, a whole bunch of ships was actually caught in the Bitter Lakes region that eventually came to be known as the Yellowed Fleet because of the year's worth of sand buildup on their hulls. I mean, it, it strikes me that anyone operating a Europe-Asia supply chain or Asia-Europe supply chain, that the possible closure of the Suez Canal should be in the top five risks every year. I mean, it can always get closed. So it struck me for it to be, you know, for, for the, the amount of, and I think hysteria is probably the sort of right word, was, was, was completely misplaced. And, and obviously we've got the bigger the ship, the more likely the blockage. So um, as everyone was waiting for that cargo, Alex, as usual, when something like there's an event, a disruptive event in shipping, there's a modal switch of some cargo to air freight. What struck me throughout the year wasn't necessarily that modal switch, but it was this consolidation of the idea that freight wasn't just increasing in importance for airlines, it was becoming absolutely critical to revenues. 
It has been, yeah. The airlines have been burning through cash on the passenger side and cargo has been their only shining star, really. It used to bring in between about 5 and 14% of revenues, depending on the carrier. Now it's about one third or more of airline revenues comes from cargo. So that's given the industry some real hope that cargo will now be involved in all the airline decision-making. Normally, passenger operations decide on the fleet and network choices, and, and cargo just has to make best of what those decisions are. But now they're in the room and their opinion is really starting to count. So um, airlines are relying on cargo now for the initial revenues on new flights, and then they're looking to build up the passenger revenues on top of that. So while, while rates remain high, I think cargo teams will carry on having quite a lot of say in decisions, which is a really nice thing for for a section of the business that's essentially been ignored. So it's been transformative. I mean, I was looking at those rates and just to give our listeners an insight into what those numbers look like. I looked at the peak season over the last five years. And for those listeners not familiar with air cargo pricing patterns, the peak season usually occurs in the fourth quarter. Normally the high point is in November each year when shippers get desperate to put product in front of holiday buyers and turn to premium shipping options as a last resort. Now, across the 2017, 18 and 19 peaks on the China to Europe trade lane, average rates never got higher than $4 a kilo on the Baltic Exchange BAI index. Now, in November 2020, they passed $6 a kilo. And this year, even into December, they're over $8 a kilo, which is the highest rate in recent memory, except, of course, for the spike we saw during the PPE crisis in April and May 2020, when rates were pushing $12 a kilo on average on China to Europe. So if you've had capacity, you'd be making good money through this pandemic. And if you've been forced to buy space on the spot market, your margins have taken a mighty whack. Alex, these prices, you've been covering this coming into December and this peak season. At the moment, there's fury in China at greedy airlines, isn't there? There is, yeah. First of all, I just want to go quickly back to what you said about the PP crisis in April, May last year. They're now saying that it looks like right now between Asia and Europe, there's another one and rates are just shooting up out of China. But one of the problems there's been is that forwarders are saying that airlines are breaking contracts across the board. Perhaps not surprisingly, airlines are saying that they're mostly sticking to their contracts to keep their customers loyal, but with some ability to flex their rates. But in China in particular, you've got the master co-loaders and they've claimed that airlines are cancelling flights, coming back with another flight number at a higher price or delaying flights until the next week's price kicks in. So there's been quite a lot of lot of anger over that. Um, and if we're, we're talking about price, I just want to add quickly that everyone seems to have made a lot of money in this pandemic or in this period, um, apart from the ground handlers who still don't have the ability to flex their prices to manage the, the congestion that's happening. And they've the handling's been chronically underfunded and it just doesn't seem very fair really i think what we've what we've seen throughout this pandemic and right across every every element of the supply chain is that there's been winners and losers emerging and it's created new opportunities and we'll look at what what's that meant for air cargo surely when we we look, examine who's been attracted into that sector by these higher prices but first, let's look elsewhere. Let's look at the winners and who's got cash to play with. Perhaps the biggest winners are the container lines. Gav, can you explain to our listeners the level of profits carriers are generating at the moment? 
Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. They're clearly uncontested winners from this. I mean, just, just looking at the third quarter, a few sort of eye-popping numbers, you know, Merck's the bellwether company for the sector, of course, third quarter profit of 5.5 billion, Papag Lloyd's 4.3 billion, CMA CGM, the best of the lot, 5.6 billion. This is a $5.6 billion profit in the space of just three months. Yeah. Even Hyundai, you know, the, the sick child of container shipping posted a 2 billion profit in the third quarter. I mean, you go back to, and I'm, I'm uh, t- to be honest, I'm rather quoting my esteemed colleague, Mike Wackett here. But if you go back to October, Drury was forecasting an annual industry-wide cumulated profit of $150 billion. Within a few weeks after that, Mike um, had done some supplementary research on it and was predicting that the industry would make $200 billion this year. So in, in the space of just a month, the forecast for the annual um, profit for the industry had increased by 25%. Mike, as, as this transformation is something, you, as Gav mentions, that you've been covering. When did it really dawn on you that this was a market that had gone slightly off grid? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's just looking back on some of the stories that we ran. I mean, it was just, where where do we go next? I mean, one, one of the things I said here is just the market's gone bananas. So freight rates effectively just filtered back down into, into the charter ships. The charter ship market, I mean, the ships that were lying around waiting for scrap suddenly became the most valuable things in the world. I mean, Panamax ships that were earning $5,000 a day, if they were lucky three or four years ago, were suddenly on offer for 100000 150 even $200,000 a day. And the carriers were were taking those charters on, and not only that, but for long periods. And then, of course, many of the carriers that had quite a big exposure to the charter market, bearing in mind that they would have to pay substantially more for those renewal charters, then started to to hoover up any ships that were around. I mean, we have, for instance, uh, I think MSC is now up to 120 ships acquired since August 2020 at prices that that some of these owners could never have dreamt of. And it's just transformed the market. I think the main point to take here is that all of these costs are now being locked in. So anybody that thinks that the rates will come down back to pre-COVID is in cloud cuckoo land, basically because all these costs are locked in and the carriers will want to keep those rates way up in order to pay for those costs that will be there for years to come. Mike, if you look at the freight rates, do you just look at the, the FBX headline, Global Freight Rate Index? You know, the 1st of January, 2021, it stood at $1,446 per FEU. Today, it's almost 10 times that. It's $9,549 per FEU. I mean, and that is just in the space of 2021. Yeah. So it's been an extraordinary rise this year. And that's that's after the first nine months of COVID. I mean, we're now into this weird post-COVID peak supply chain cataclysm price-wise. That race environment has been transformative and it's created these war chests for people right up and down that supply chain. One of the ways that some of that money's being spent is it's enabled investments in air cargo capacity, Alex. 
Yeah, it's been a really interesting development. I mean, there is now four airlines closely connected to shipping lines. There's the new entrance, there's Maersk and CMA, CGM, but there's also Evergreen's Eva Air and NYK Lines, Nippon Cargo Airlines. Now, some air cargo people have told me that they're, they're quite excited by this, this disruption. They think that there's quite an obvious logistics synergy in having a shipping line, a forwarder, an airline, and that they might be able to develop a really integrated product, which the airlines have frankly struggled to do on their own. Others point to the difficulties of having sort of non-neutral metals. So how much do you charge for your aircraft when you've got a forwarder attached and the GSA? Who makes the larger cut? And there's been sort of suggestions that CMA CGM, which has tried really hard to be neutral about its air freight services and SEVA, in fact, is finding it quite uncomfortable internally to, to work out how, how to develop it. But yeah, the lines now have a lot of aircraft. Maersk is said to be looking for more. And interestingly, it's changing the language in air cargo a bit. People are starting to talk about BCOs instead of shippers, which I've never come across before in air cargo. So it'll be quite interesting to see what else changes. Um, Boeing obviously does a lot of research in its customers. It's now researching the shipping lines. And it'd be interesting to see how it changes the way that space is sold and whether there'll be more selling direct to the shipper, which is something shipping lines do and airlines don't. I think it's going to open the market up in quite an interesting way. Beyond investing like Maersk and CMA, CGM having their supply chain, it's not just lines with money to spare. It's forwarders, it's integrators. It's everyone who's benefited in the last 20 months. How might some of these companies spend their riches as we look forward to next year? I think we're going to see some some big acquisitions coming up. You know, Merce, the one that everyone's watching, there's a couple of forwarders associated with that, one possibly in the US, one in Asia. And I think we're going to see more integration, sort of vertically speaking, and I think people will keep buying more forwarders. It's, it's it's really difficult when you when you ask that question, Mike. It's really difficult to take your eyes away from the war chests of the container lines, and especially looking at the forwarders. You know, their margins are are, are shrinking, right? And, and you look at the how the the container lines are building up their war chests. It's the carriers that are the ones who are really spending the money. I mean, you know, we've had a, we've had a couple of big ticket acquisitions in the. Freight forwarding market, you know, most notably recently DSV's purchase of Agility. And we've also had that Maersk purchase of Senator, which obviously gave them a bigger footprint in, in air cargo. That's right. So that's going back to Maersk. That's going back to the shipping line. You know, this is what I'm saying. The sector which is able to just put its hand into its pockets and bring out big wads of cash without having to worry about how to finance it, or whether it's debt or issuing new equity. The, the, the sector that can do that is, is the carriers. I mean, you've got, so what do we, we said Maersk, okay, 600, we think around 650 million odd on, um, on Senator, but at the same time, CMA, CGM, you notice buying, um, two and a half billion into a, to buy a terminal in, in Los Angeles, a couple of weeks later, 3 billion to buy a contract logistics company. You know, you've got Hapag Lloyd buying into terminals, which it has never done before. So there's also been a sort of divergence of strategy between the carriers about what they actually want to spend their money on. Just looking at different elements of our industry, Gav, one of the big bottlenecks that we've seen is a lack of labour. This has been particularly apparent in the US and Europe in trucking and warehousing. As you've been covering this, are you expecting an improvement in 2022? 
Well, not in the short term. I mean, they're, they're, we, we hopefully will see some easing of the situation next year because it's, it's, you know, when you've got a chronic lack of labour like this, it just hampers everything. But these are long-term structural issues. They take long-term solutions to really get on top of them. So in the UK, for example, there's no doubt that the driver shortage crisis was exacerbated by the lack of licences issued to new drivers, the lack of testing that was, you know, new drivers being tested to obtain their qualifications. That was severely curtailed in 2020 because of the work lockdowns, which prevented the regulatory agencies from performing those tests and issuing those licences. You know, they are tackling that backlog now. So there is points where you see those pressures easing, but that will not tackle in the UK alone. You're talking about a shortage of coming up to 100,000 drivers. You know, being able to issue a few licenses and do a few tests doesn't tackle a 100,000 shortage in the space of a few months. You know, it takes, takes much longer. And, and every market that we look at sees similar pressures. And they, you know, they, they all have particular characteristics to them. So unfortunately, one suspects that these problems are likely to persist. Okay, well, that's something to keep an eye on in 2022, which we'll look at in a bit more detail shortly when we hear from various experts I've been interviewing about how they think COVID has changed, for example, the shipper-carrier relationship and supply chain planning. But first, what was the most interesting, important, intriguing, or just plain fun story that you covered for the Lodestar in 2021? I think one of the um, stories that really struck me, which really illustrates how fragile the supply chain is, is the uh, broken scanner in Dhaka Airport in Bangladesh. Um, obviously, Bangladesh is a major garment exporter. And because of difficulty with security, all freight has to be scanned there before it can go to the EU on a direct flight. But they have two scanning machines and they were out of order. This was in the middle of what turned out to be something of a, of a garment peak season. Um, and it meant the whole process just sort of came to a halt for the sake of $1 million, which is what one of these scanners costs, apparently. Airlines were leaving the airport 30% full, 40% full. There were substantial delays. And um, in the end, Bangladesh had to wait for funding from Japan to buy the new scanners, which it's just installed this week, I think. it's just It just shows how unequal the infrastructure is around the world and how easily one slight thing can cause a um, sort of massive spill-off of congestion, delays and, and high prices. I, th I think we, we come back to uh, the top news story of the year, without doubt, the, the ever given, and um, its eventual arrival in Felixstowe in August. And it created a lot of newspaper headlines, etc. A lot of people down there to see the ship, which was quite uninterested, basically. Um, but a lot of people there were actually insurers. And they were down there because, you know, as one guy said to me, it was, I was there moment, but he wanted to see what had caused him so much time and problem in the previous four months, given that the, uh, the, the general average had been declared on, on the ship. He said, I wanted to come and see this ship that's caused me so much work over this past four months. There, were, there was another interesting aside because as the ship approached the terminal, she passed the Merskesson and the Merskesson in January had itself lost 750 containers. So it was quite an interesting aside for those in the, in the know. 
the most interesting story I've covered this year actually has been uh, the spin-off of GXO Logistics from XPO Logistics. And, well, I mean, one, it's, it was quite a big capital story itself. But what it did was, it, it, to our mind, it heralded the creation of a new subset in the 3PL sphere, which we've, the term we've coined a premium, is uh, pure play contract logistics operators. So that'd be GXO Logistics in the UK, which is quite an advanced contract logistics market. We have Wincanton. Clipper Logistics in France, there's ID Logistics, FM Logistics. I mean, these are all sort of names, but basically these companies, all they do is focus on running warehouses for outsourced clients. And so 2021, with the sort of massive explosion in e-commerce in particular, and the way that that's driven retail supply chains into an omni-channel mode, that's been a game changer. That's been a, a, a structural change in the industry. And I think we're likely to see more of these. And in fact, you know, just going back to what we were talking about uh, recently in terms of the um, shipping lines investing, if you look at the most recent acquisition this week, CMA CGM, again, $3 billion for a, for a US-based contract logistics operator, frankly, hadn't really come up on my radar before. Um, very instructive that they would, they would put all this money into that. And in fact, if you look at the behavior of Maersk in terms of its focus, its relentless focus on long-term contracts and the way that it's dealing with its customers, I mean, there is a, there's, there's a case to be said that basically Maersk has become a contract, a pure play contract logistics operator. The only difference between Maersk and GXO Logistics, for example, is that its assets are ships and ports rather than warehouses and trucks. It's just it's effectively carrying the same freight. It's just further downstream or upstream, depending on where your perspective in the supply chain is. Alex, you look like you have something to add. Just wanted to say that um, where there's money, there's lawyers. And I think one of the things that the shipping lines may have to contend with is uh, people, lawyers, in particular cartel, antitrust, competition lawyers, looking to see if there are any seams in which they can relieve them of some of their cash. The airlines learned this the hard way. And I think it's not unlikely that the lawyers, I, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to accuse the US justice system of being commercialized at all, but they did make a lot of money out of the airlines. And there is a possibility that they'll they'll start to look very closely at the shipping lines and whether they might be able to relieve them of some of their money. Well, they didn't just make a lot of money out of the airlines. They put a few people in prison as well, if I have you to... Well, there's that too, yeah. Okay, 2022, I'm going to play some clips shortly for us to discuss. But before we get started, very briefly for each of you, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing forwarders and shippers next year? Alex? I think it's going to be much the same. And if you talk to forwarders at the moment, one of the things that really frustrated about is managing customer expectations you know customers booked at a certain price on a certain day and they're finding that the price has gone up the capacity is not there and and forwarders are tired of of having to explain to their customers all the time why they can't get what they've paid for and i think as long as covid is around and among us which it apparently very much still is i think there'll be much of the same rates will stay high shippers will be frustrated I think, you know, there'll be lockdowns and it'll be much of the same, unfortunately. Mike? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting that the um, online equipment platform container exchange, it, it did a poll of 
800 logistics uh, companies recently. And the, the biggest concern by far of the respondents was something like about 53% was finding slots on vessels next year as the biggest challenge. Interestingly, the second biggest concern was carrier surcharges at 22%. So they, they were the, the main concerns that were coming through on that, on that survey. I, yeah, I don't think we've heard the end of carrier surcharges at all. Gavin, what's your big concern or what do you think forwarders and shippers should be worried about next year in terms of the challenges that they might have to confront? For me, it's still, um, aside from the capacity and, and pricing of, of freight, it's, it's labour. It's the availability of truck drivers, the, which translates into the availability of capacity of inland cargo movements. And it's labor in warehouses, you know, and it's not just the structural shortages in both of those groups that we've talked about previously in this episode. It's, um, as, as Alex just said, you've got the specter of COVID. COVID, you know, when new variants come in and new and social distancing measures have to be reintroduced, that cuts the uh, capacity, the ability of a warehouse to operate. So when a new variant of COVID emerges, you get new social distancing programs or lockdowns. And we can see this in, in somewhere like China, which, you know, has a sort of zero transmission policy. And, and you know, social distancing really hits warehouse productivity by limiting the number of workers who can load and unload trucks and, and operate forklifts and pallets and all that sort of stuff. So, so for me, it's the, it's the continuing shortage of labor. So, I mean, as you say, it's very interesting, the idea that COVID won't go away how do you how do you plan for that does that change how people are going to set up their supply chains and this is something i was talking to john pearson who's the dhl express ceo earlier this year during a, a hub launch at paris de gaulle airport in september and apologies in advance for the poor sound but i asked him if covid would really change that planning process if it would lead to a shift to more resilient logistics strategies? His answer was a comprehensive no. In terms of um, regionalization, nearshoring, offshoring, the example I like to give is that during the Ash Cloud crisis, 2010, uh, the number of customers that came to me, and we've got to remind ourselves, this was a month where there wasn't one aircraft in the sky, apart from a DHL aircraft, actually. People tend to think it was a weather event for three days. It wasn't. It was 31 days. And everyone said, we're going to change our supply chains for sure. Nothing happened because those supply chains are built on economics and efficiency, and they've served everyone very well. You might get some um, high precision tooling equipment, you know, produced nearer to Switzerland or wherever it's going to be used, or some elements of SKUs that are, that are near shored. But by and large, you know, trade will continue to move in the same way. It may well be China plus one, China plus two. That's already happening, but that's not a major shift. That's just an acceleration of something that would have happened anyway. So I, I don't see anything too dramatic. Changing your supply base, by the way, is extremely complicated. People say, right, we're going to change from people that are based in China. We're not going to buy from people in Singapore that are based in China. Well, that's your tier one suppliers. If you want to get into tier two and tier three, those guys might in fact be buying product from China anyway. So it's very difficult to change your supply chain matrices in the first place, which is why a lot of companies don't do it. The sort of anecdotal thing I like to say, if anyone thinks the Bangladesh uh, denim jean industry is going to move to Stuttgart or Reading, they need to think again because that industry has been there. It's efficient there. It's productive there. 
as well as other places, but I just don't see that anyone would take a different step because they had become very inefficient against their competitors. So I think, you know, regionalization is a little bit talked up. For every piece of protectionism and nationalism that I read about, a trade deal is being signed somewhere in the world. And, um, you know, as I said, globalization brings prosperity and there's still plenty of it that I see is going on. I also asked Lars Jensen, one of the most prominent shipping analysts and also the CEO of Vespucci Maritime, about building in supply chain resilience in this post-COVID future that we're discussing. I spoke to him a couple of months ago and this was his reply. I don't believe we're going to see a massive wave of nearshoring on this count either. A couple of elements to that. I mean, nearshoring has been the buzzword for at least the last 10 years for a variety of different reasons. And every time nearshoring is brought up, you can always find an example. You can always find a company that has nearshored. But when you look at the overall data, there has been absolutely no systematic trend towards nearshoring at all. Now, in the light of what we see right now, Let's think it through. Will we see nearshoring? Well, who is it that would nearshore? If I'm an importer and I'm importing expensive goods that doesn't take up a lot of space, say expensive sports shoes. Sure, it's annoying. I have to pay five or $10,000 more to ship the container. But compared to the millions of dollars worth of product in the container, it is still neglectable. I'm not going to nearshore on account of that. So expensive stuff, no. What about the cheap stuff? Well, here's the problem. If I'm importing cheap stuff, I'm right now in a situation where I am downright loss-making if I pay these freight rates. My, my business simply doesn't add up. So I could nearshore, but I'm importing cheap stuff. The only way I can make that business model work is if production costs are extremely low. So I would not be able to nearshore. It would be still be too expensive to produce. So I'm caught between a rock and a hot place. What I would rather say here is these extreme rates we see now, by the way, they're not going to be sustainable. This is a short-term thing. Once we get out from under this, though, freight rates will be higher than what we've been used to, which also means that we could very well be entering a phase where there are some, definitely not the majority, but there are likely some importers who will find their business model is just no longer viable. If your business model is reliant on very low production costs and very, very low freight costs, you might be heading into a future where that business model is just not viable anymore. We hear a lot of talk about supply chain resilience, but I remember covering Fukushima in Japan, Icelandic ash clouds that the guys were referring to, then Thai floods, many other disruptive events over the years and the talk after each of them and during each of them in fact has tended to be that we're going to have more resilience built into supply chains to prevent this being so disruptive in the future but then after that probably nothing's really happened uh, do any of you think that covid might be different just to respond to what, what john pearson was saying there i thought it was very interesting because what he was effectively saying in a nutshell was that there really aren't any alternatives to china on a on a, on the sort of mass production scale that can basically feed the world's appetite for for goods yeah the only possible alternative that you can really come up with the only place you can think of that could actually replicate that sort of scale is india but it's impossible for that to i mean india just in terms because of its demographics, but 
you know, that for, for India to actually do that would require, you know, the sort of 15 to 20 year infrastructure program that the Chinese undertook between sort of the mid nineties to, to what was it, 2010, when they embarked on this massive port building boom. And until someone else does something of a comparable scale, and really the only country that could would be India, it's difficult to see how people can build a, a resilient supply chain with a diversified supply base. Yeah, I mean, well, you can move out of China, but can you afford, given the competition in whatever industry you're in, to, to build in resilience if that makes you less competitive? you know, to someone who's going to stick to a just-in-time logistics model. I guess we will see. Now, quickly, we're, we're running out of time before I speak to Michael Wax, uh, co-founder and CEO of Forto, about the future of supply chains. But first, the, the big one, which is which always drags in a lot of readers to the Lodestar through the year. People want to know how much it's going to cost to ship things. Alex, obviously, we were talking earlier about these high rates that we've got in air cargo. What brings rates down in 2022? I'm not sure that anything will particularly. I, d I don't think they'll be as high as they have been at some points in the year consistently. But um, I think COVID essentially is going to keep rates up, keep rates elevated. Lockdowns, as we know, they create demand for consumer goods. They slow down supply chains, as Gav was just saying. They contribute to labour shortages. They impact schedules. And all of that keeps rates high. Obviously, airline is very much about capacity. With covid still raging i can't see passengers coming back with any serious force and so i think the capacity will continue to be limited so i think it's going to be another high yield year for the carriers and gavin mike we've had some softening of ocean shipping spot rates in the fourth quarter what are you expecting to happen next year i think we're already seeing that actually that softening has now come i mean rates are now starting to go up again and they will continue to go up because we now we're going for Chinese New Year, and that's early. That's in the first week in February. So rates are going to go start going up again. They're going to hold and, uh, and and go up slightly, and probably go up quite a bit more in the first bit uh, bit of January. I mean, what happens after Chinese New Year? I, I think what Alex is saying really is depends where what sort of variants we've got around and how many disruptions there are to the supply chain. And what the carriers do, I mean, what you're seeing, of course, is you're not actually seeing blank sailings, you're seeing slidings, which is the same sort of thing, really. Effectively, ships are just kept there for a few more days to go into the next week. So, yes, they'll control that capacity and they'll want to keep those rates up because they'll still be negotiating contracts in the early part of next year, particularly on the Trans-Pacific. And they'll want to make sure those rates stay firm and not show too much sign of weakness so that they can get those lovely contracts for multi-year contracts banked and protect them and insulate themselves for their next few years. There's still quite a lot of cargo still to come through the system, isn't there, Mike? I mean, there's a, a whole thousands and thousands of containers that were supposed to have arrived at their destination weeks ago that are still sort of working through the system. A lot of Christmas goods that aren't going to make the shops, but it should make for some bumper January sales. Yeah, I mean, those, those sales to inventory ratios are still very low wherever you look. Yeah, not, not much use for the, uh, for the Christmas advent calendars that's still stuck in Zabrugga. Now, maybe we'll get them next year. Now, but particularly for ocean shippers, the last two years have been very difficult. I asked freight procurement expert Bjorn van Jensen 
who's an Electrolux veteran and, and is current VP of Advisory Services at Sea Intelligence, what this crisis had taught container lines. He said this. Long term, this crisis has taught carers finally how to really balance supply and demand. They've become exceptionally good at managing things like blank savings, uh, on the fly schedule changes, things like this that I also think one should not fall for that siren song of all these vessels arriving in 2023, 2024, because carriers are not going to allow that old capacity to come back. They're not. They've learned their lesson and good for them. Now, I also spoke to Bjorn in the second week of December, and he clarified this point further. He said managing capacity is not only about blanking sailings, it's also about dropping ports, scrapping vessels, redeploying vessels into different trades, slow steaming, etc. Gav, what's your thoughts on, on liner strategy? I largely, largely agree with Bjorn. The only aspect of it that I'd question, and this goes back to what Alex was saying earlier on about the legal aspect of it, you know, at some point when you manage capacity, and even if it's not, you, you don't agree to manage capacity, but you signal your intention of managing capacity, there are grounds for accusations of cartel-like behavior, right? So we strongly suspect that there's, there's quite a lot of activity going on behind the scenes in some law firms that are analyzing the behavior of the carriers. And it's, and it's not, it's not restricted to pricing. It's focusing on how they're managing capacity and how they might be signaling to each other, how that capacity is being managed. I sort of agree with Gav there. I think, I think it's quite interesting here because <clears throat> what we've seen is, you know, we, we've seen some entrepreneurial carriers come in ad hoc shipments and whatever. So what the carriers have to be a little bit careful about is that with rates remaining high, it now becomes economic to run Panamax from Asia to, to North Europe, and you can make some money out of that. So, so there are opportunities that we haven't seen for, for many years because they've been taken out by the sheer size of, of, of these ships and, and the, the amount of equipment you have to put on the service for a new line of services to come in that can actually offer some service. Maybe just port to port. You know where your containers are. You they'll answer the phone when when you call them. They'll answer their emails. They provide some sort of customer service, which you see less and less of. I mean, the billions that the carriers are making, there's just absolutely no investment at all going into the front line. Still, so the, the you know the sales, the marketing, the after sales service is it, just non-existent. That's what I'm being told daily. That's something I also asked Bjorn about, this liner-shipper relationship, which he characterizes as symbiotic. To Bjorn, he, he believes that neither party, obviously, which survives without the other. Of course, they don't. But in future, he thinks this will force that shipper-carrier relationship to be much more well-regulated, uh, that each party will have to be more amenable to each other's interests, and they'll move towards enforceable contracts. He, he also said this, Long-term, it's a symbiotic relationship, yeah? Uh, shippers need the uh, carriers, NGOs need carriers, shipper, uh, carriers need them both. So at some point, we're going to have to eat a deal. I think, and I actually hope that what's going to happen is there's this pipe dream that a lot of us have been 
having been pushing for a decade of actually enforceable contracts that allow the carriers to make a decent profit, long-term index regulated, but with guarantees on both and penalties on both sides, they are going to become reality. In fact, they already are. There are some shippers who are already saying enough already. Why do we keep running this beauty contest uh, type tendering uh, thing? Why do we invest four or five months of our lives in that? Let's sit down with a carrot now, create the long-term enforceable contracts that buys us goodwill and goodwill these days equals space. Uh, and, uh, and space is, is all important. So in, in, a, in a certain perverse way, I think this crisis is an excellent thing for the entire industry, for the entire ecosystem. This is not a healthy system and it needs to end. And if it takes a, a, an earthquake of this magnitude to end it, then as Boston Consulting Group once said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Right. If nothing else comes of it, at least maybe we can come out on the other side whenever that other side arrives with a much healthier approach to, to working together. Mike, you've had a stellar career as a liner executive and journalist. Now, just listening to Bjorn there, and also if I'm allowed to reference the person I'm reliably informed as your favorite musician, the fantastic Yaz, is the only way up for the liner-shipper relationship in 2022, as Bjorn hopes? Possibly, but there was another record that came to mind, another artist, uh, I think it's a Northern Irish band called Dream. Things can only get better, I think, used in elections before now. But I'd sort of probably go back maybe to my era and the, the Stones and uh, basically you can't always get what you want. Basically, so that may may well be the motto. <laughs> Excellent, Mike. I like that, Mike. Brilliant. What a great way to finish this section. Now, before I speak to Fortos, Michael Wax, let me just say happy holiday season to you all. And thanks for joining me on the Lodestar podcast to Alex, Gavin and Mike. Thanks, Mike. And, and you happy, might, Christmas. happy Christmas. So today, as we head towards our Christmas parties, I'm joined by quite a unique executive in our industry. His bio has these crazy numbers. He has founded several successful B2B software companies, raised over $343 million and hired around 750 employees. He is the co-founder of Europe's first digital freight forwarding company, which I'm told, and I quote, is building a digital backbone for the multi-trillion global trade market in 16 locations worldwide. And he spends his free time mountain biking and kite surfing. And I, a little bear tells me he might go skiing this weekend. I think we can say he is a risk taker and in our markets, a disruptor. So Michael Wax, co-founder and CEO of Forto. My first question is this, was your biggest risk sponsoring a podcast about freight markets that about seven months ago didn't exist except in my head. <laughs> well, first of all, good morning, Mike. Uh, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I think I'm, I'm definitely a fiend to risk. I like the adrenaline rush every now and then, but I think that uh, sponsoring the Lodestar podcast wasn't necessarily 
really driven by that factor. I think you guys have a great audience. We're active readers, and that's why it was pretty much a no-brainer for us to support this. That was very kind of you, Michael. You're definitely a risk taker. Uh, now, our listeners want to hear about what's going on on the operational front. So we're hitting the Christmas period, and we're looking into 2022. But let's just let, let's zoom in on where we are now. As we say, you're co-founder of Forto. You're a disruptor. And we are probably in the most disrupted time of our working lives. So our listeners, if they can peer through a window into your company, can you tell me what supply chain challenges Forto is facing right now in different parts of the world? And, and then maybe after that, we can dial back into how we got here and what happens next. But where are we right now? Well, the day we can definitely say we, we've been experiencing two of the most, yeah, let's say exciting and unexpectedly volatile years in the shipping market, I'd say. I'm in this industry for, for like five and a half, six years right now. I'm not necessarily born into logistics. I, I studied mechanical engineering. And when we came into this market six years ago, like freight rates were probably at the absolute bottom of all times. And just about two years ago now, when, when COVID is starting to hit Europe, everyone was really unsure about how this would evolve and the people were super scared around supply chains, basically running dry completely and people not being able to work in warehouses anymore and ports. And man, like what we've been seeing after this, probably about one of the biggest demand booms you've ever had in the industry, combined with obviously massive disruptions from ships clocking up, um, super important trade streams from ports being closed because of COVID cases, from workers leaving the workforce and therefore a, a, a massive lack of drivers. So ultimately it's been a difficult years, primarily for our customers. Yeah? And I, I think it's been difficult to see that it's been really hard to make sure that their business is running smoothly. But it, on the other hand, great to see that all of them have been really re-emphasizing the way they've been thinking about digitization, about the way they need visibility for their supply chains, the way they're valuing, appreciating transparency. And so I'd say overall, Fordra has been doing a great job going through those um, crisis, has been tripling growth again, has been making sure that we provide our clients with short-term, long-term rates and all the options they need in order to get through those times um, successfully. Zooming in a little bit on, in terms of where we are now, in terms of those operational bottlenecks, the most visible bottleneck we can probably, anyone, everyone's aware of, and we've covered this a lot in, on the Lodestar podcast is uh, the huge queue of vessels on LA Long Beach. You're doing this day to day. Is that just a symptom of what's happened before? Is that how did we get to that point and, and what does that look like for your guys on the ground? I think that's, that, that's true, but I think next to, um, obviously the, the very present bottlenecks that were covered in the media up and down and Long Beach and LA now starts also to basically pile up in Vancouver and some ports in Asia still, um, see massive disruptions and on the Asia Europe trade lane where basically we run most of our business. You still there see seven to 12 days of delays, like super unreliable schedules and everything seems to be still very out of sync. So as it looks right now, it, it, it it's hard to obviously predict the future and look into the class ball, but ultimately uh, it, it's difficult to foresee any kind of change in the near term that would mean that all of those problems are going away. Like it's so multifaceted, maybe terminal capacities and probably a lack of investment over years and decades um, that can't be fixed in a couple of months. Uh, maybe obviously a massive boom in certain industries that now are 
facing severe shortages of um, warehousing space and are using their empty containers to basically have temporary space on their parking lots. So I think a lot of what has changed over the last one and a half to two years won't be fixed in just a couple of months or days. Uh, you say there about those delays on the Asia-Europe trade. Exactly where are they and what's the cause of them? So, well, we still see that um, a lot of um, the schedules are, are out of place. So if you just imagine that it takes whatever 14, 15 days for a vessel to be on berth in, in the uh, beach LA, like this vessel is supposed to go back to the port in Asia. Yeah. And now it's arriving 10 days later. Uh, it's probably super difficult for those terminal operators to make sure that at this time they actually can provide the space required to um, load more containers. Uh, if, you, if you look at some of the biggest carriers, for every container that they bring to Asia, they take three from China yeah, explicitly. So it's, that there is a trade imbalance that we had for many, many years. And, and, and now we have super unreliable schedules. So that combined yeah, means that a lot of those, like one single dip, like one single mistake in this super fragile chain can mean that everything's out of sync yeah? because then the vessel coming from Europe who may have been scheduled to actually uh, discharge or arrive at the port at a certain date and time has to be rescheduled because whatever the ship that just came from, from the US is still, is still there. So I think that's nothing's like planned. And a lot of those disruptions obviously cause um, delays that you will see on many different sites popping up, uh, popping up again. Can I just take you back in time slightly to the start of the pandemic? So we're looking first quarter 2020 in terms of logistics. Most of these problems that we're talking about, they stem back from there. What did that look like from your perspective almost two years ago? So we've been talking a lot about the bullwhip effect. And I think that the, the, the problem we had is like we've had multiple, um, multiple moments of impetus into this um, bullwhip space. So in the very beginning, like, four to five weeks of no production in China and inventories were going down. So you basically built up a bit of a backlog that it had to be filled again. Then obviously last year, March, April, a big focus from a lot of supply chain companies on helping clients to get um, really necessary medical equipment on board. So that has taken a lot of the effort capacity over months. Yeah? So we've been chartering multiple planes a week to basically make sure we could go up with that demand and, and, and help clients on that front. And that has basically been going all the way um, into the summer season where then through for similar um, packages, you saw demand going up. Yeah, because people spent money on everything that made their home more comfortable or outdoors more fun and compensating for lack of services they could purchase or, or consume. So that has been then shifting a lot of the spending power towards physical goods that all in the end were shipped in a container. And for the first time you saw that a 10% year on year growth for a 250 year industry is not easily compensated. Yeah. This is not a startup that grows double digit growth year on year. Like this is very much like a super old brick and mortar business that relies on, let's say predictabilities for years to come and has been growing in line with GDP for many, many years. So two, maybe three, three and a half percent year on year. But now all of a sudden, like $10 trillion fueling into a system that is not made to cope with that demand increase. And I think that's something that you've then seen from pretty much last year, summer, all the way until now. And I don't see anything that, that will stop that very soon. But at the same time, we've had multiple bottlenecks on the supply side. Suez Canal, Yantian port closure, Ningbo port closure. And I mean, now looking into the future, most of the goods are 
coming out of China still, and maybe in Trans-Pacific, also in the Asia-Europe trade lane. And if you look at the vaccination programs in, in, in China and to, to, to the extent they've built up some kind of herd immunity, so 10, 15, 20 cases of a new variant yeah, will probably be enough to basically completely slow down and, and stop the system again. So I think we're not necessarily over, over, over peak there and, and it will remain to be an interesting year 2022. Just looking at that period, from a personal perspective, how has the view of what you do for a living, you know, changed in terms of people that you know or, or people in your industry? I mean, I, I've been in doing this for quite a long time now. No one's ever cared what I do for a living. And then the last two years, we were going, supply chains, what, why is something not on a shelf or what's going on? All of a sudden, it's gone mainstream. Can you just give us any insight into how that's sort of been like for you as a person? Yeah, I think that there are many examples in the, over the last year. I mean, maybe that pretty much every major newspaper has covered it in the headlines that supply chains are, are seeing massive the disruptions. I think a lot of people have for first time experience that their bike's still in the right on time, that Shimano now has two year delivery times, that they couldn't buy a PlayStation 5 because it's out of stock for the next five years. And people are wondering, like, this system has been always working well. Like, I could press the button on Amazon. And with Prime, the stuff arrives a day later. And now all of a sudden, like this convenience is gone. Like, how could that happen? And you basically tell them and start to educate them around, well, there's a big system that transports pretty much 90% of everything. What we eat, what we wear, what we basically use the entire day. And they were like, wow, like that's, um, that's impressive. Like, that's what you're doing all day? Like, so I, I think a lot of my friends were actually stunned by the importance of, of trade, not just as a contributor to, to good life today and basically keeping up assisting critical infrastructure, but also if you spend the importance of our industry a bit further and you give them a bit more context around it, that I think none of them have really understood to what extent global trade has been massively contributing to prosperity over the years. And uh, it's probably one of the industries that has been bringing most people out of poverty over the last 30 years, but also has been contributing massively to the level of quality of life that we are living today. Michael, we're going to come back to what that means in terms of Forto and, it, and its future in terms of how our industry is viewed and, and how that looks in the markets. But as we look forward to 2022, do you still see a landscape of potential risk to cargo flows or perhaps data flows? Or do you see one of opportunities? And, it, and if the latter, what are those opportunities? I think that there is a massive opportunity for us out there next Um 10 years because now for the first time, supply chains are getting the attention they deserve. And I mean, general as a topic, it has managed to move up from a housekeeping agenda item from most of the board conversations all the way to a prior one. Yes. And I think this opens up an opportunity to, to pitch today's CEOs of companies, the, the way they really would benefit from a more transparent, more, more visible interface to manage their global goods flows, global cash flows, global data flows. And that's where we come in. That's where we help companies, mid-market players from across Europe to digitize their services, to really make sure they're, that they're gaining visibility, that they're getting a whole new level of actionability on things that are not running smoothly and ultimately setting up supply chains that just work. Okay. And, and how are you going to make the most of those opportunities as a company? Are you, does this mean you're Going back to market, are you further expanding? What's the plans? So I think for Fortu, the, the 
it's always been the mission to to grow into a global top 10 logistics company. And, and as of right now, we, uh, I think, have done a good job in growing our business on, on the Asia-Europe or specifically China-Germany trade lane. But we've been making a massive effort to expand across Europe already this year, and that will be further intensified over the coming years. So we are today already in Denmark. We are in the Netherlands. We are in Portugal, in Spain. We are just opened an office in Poland, and there will be five to six more countries in the next year. So we'll be covering Europe throughout. And from that, obviously, then the next step is, uh, is US. Is, is there a time scale on that? There definitely be a time scale on that, but we don't. Uh, You're not going to tell me, are you? In a position to speak openly about it. But uh, yeah, obviously, now we, 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 we raised more capital this year to invest in exactly those activities. So uh, there's a lot more to come from Fordo in the next 12 to 18 months. Michael, so. On episode eight of the Lodestar podcast, we were reporting direct from COP26 in Glasgow about what sustainability looks like for our industry. From your perspective, what does that look like? What, what is sustainability? What is carbon-free supply chain? What do your customers care about? And how does that translate into a digital forwarding business? Well, like today... Shipping contributes to 3% of global emissions. And Forto as a company always had baked into the purpose of the firm to provide ongoing, continuous prosperity through enabling and democratizing global trade in a more sustainable way. And that means to us that not just being a carbon neutral company ourselves from the very beginning, we've been massively increasing our efforts to educate customers around their responsibility and we see a lot more interest from their side as well. So today we are proud to say that 65% of our customers are already offsetting their emissions with us. And to us, similar in line with the transport business, it all starts with the visibility first, then the actionability, and then ultimately a system that just works. That means that today we provide full transparency on emissions for our clients and we give them the ability to offset today, but we also give them the ability to, for example, choose only on carriage methods with renewable uh, energies. And um, in the future, there will be much more programs around providing them with the capabilities to purchase alternative fuels to really have end-to-end um, emission tracking on a product level. And with that, to make sure that they are being responsible in the way they're running their business. Michael, I, I'm from a sort of trucking forward in family background business. And I ended up in this industry totally by accident. But your background is slightly more varied. How did you go from mechanical engineering to digital forwarding? And what does that, what does that journey look like for you? So when I was at university, I've been part of a, of a student team that has been developing and engineering a race car. So a hundred people that have been spending all their life for one year to build a race car from scratch, right? Carbon fiber motorcock, electric motor, accelerating from zero to hundred kilometers per hour in roughly 2.5, 2.6 seconds. And it's been a blast. Like everyone was just focused around building the best car, building the best system, making sure that we have a reliable system that wins through some pissing. And for me, it was always clear that I want to work in such an environment. And it was for Eric and me clear that we want to build up a company that very much acts as a team with the ambition to win and to build the most simple and reliable system. And yeah, I happened to find that in freight forwarding again. And to me, freight forwarding has a lot in common with, with what we learn in engineering, like setting up systems, making sure like, just like an assembly line, everything's working like intact, everything's working smoothly, everything's working like a machine. And this is how we set our systems today up for 
end-to-end full automation to make sure our clients get the most convenient and reliable service from us. Everyone loves the system, but what happens and how does Forto manage this when things go wrong, which is basically what forwarding is about? We have an amazing team of uh, experienced operators in place that have close contact to the client and that are today obviously making sure their shipments um, run smoothly. So they're enabled by our technology to get more proactive, low latency information to make sure they can provide the best updates to the client. And with that also make sure that they will much more grow into like a monitoring um, um, function where they can do a thousand shipments at a time and not only 40 to 50, what we see today is kind of like the standard in the industry. Michael Wax, co-founder and CEO of Forto. Thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks a lot, Mike, for having me and see you very soon. Bye-bye. It's the final episode of the year. And as we finish up, let me thank you all for listening. I must add also, the creation and production of this podcast would not have been possible without the endless patience and hard work of audio wizards and editors, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. Thank you, guys. It also wouldn't have been possible without the support of our 2021 sponsors, Forto and the Baltic Exchange. And last but not least, thank you to all the Lodestar's brilliant journalists for their fantastic input this year and for the support and sales excellence of Arabella Tancred and Nick Marsh. Thank you all. Which leaves me only to wish everyone happy holidays and best wishes for 2022.